welcome, welcome to the Stone Soup Podcast, created by Cody Sullivan for the River Power Podcast Mill Network. Welcome, welcome, one and all, to another episode of the Stone Soup Podcast, the show where I drag my friends onto the internet to talk about things that they're interested in. And today, I have a very special guest. I am joined by my friend Shelby Aris. Shelby, please say hello. 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 Shelby and I work together at Ohana Camp on Lake Fairley, and we've bonded over our love of food and also horror movies. She recently starred in my horror anthology podcast, Pulp from Beyond the Veil, and you can listen to that story titled The Crimson Nightmare wherever you listen to your podcasts. But more than just starring in that piece, you have something of a connection to the author of that story, don't you? Yes, Gustav, or Gilladin, as we called him in your podcast, is my partner, and he lives in Sweden. That is incredible. That's our first international contributor, and I'm very excited about that, and he also wrote a very good story, so uh, uh, pass my thanks along to, to him, and if you're listening, uh, check that out. It's called The Crimson Nightmare, Pulp from Beyond the Veil. And with that, let's get on to the topic du jour, shall we? I wanted to talk to you about your uh, penchant for baking, and moreover, I wanted to ask you some more philosophical and sociological questions about baking as it pertains to today's current COVID-stricken climate. Uh, I'll start with something simple. So you've been baking a long time. Uh, I personally have sampled some of your delicious bagels and sourdough <laughs> bread. Uh, and though baking is becoming more popular of a hobby, it still is a bit niche and a bit artsy, particularly things like sourdough. Well, when did you start getting into baking your own bread and what made you want to get into it? This is really good timing. My sourdough's one-year birthday is on Sunday, May 3rd, so um, <laughs> my that's how long I've been baking sourdough, and prior to that, I think I was just sort of a amateur recipe baker, not really getting into the science or the math of baking, um, and yeah, so that's that's how long I've been delving into sourdoughs is almost exactly a year. Um, when, you which say has... when you say your sourdough is, is coming up on its one-year birthday, uh, why don't you talk about that just for a second? Because I think there's some people that might be a little confused about what that means. So sourdough, I like to think of my sourdough as a pet. Um, you have to feed it and take care of it. You sort of have to nurture it, which... Um, you know, I definitely notice when I am baking and rushed or not understanding things, the product comes out reflecting that insecurity or lack of care. Um, so I think when it comes to baking, especially with natural starters, um, you really have to consider the time and energy that goes into it. So for a sourdough starter, the easiest way to start is with flour and water and it takes the bacteria in the flour there's probably some bacteria in the water as well and the natural yeast that just occurs in the air around us and starts that fermentation process um, so to keep the yeast active you have to continue to feed it and i think a lot of people um, run into the difficulties of sourdough because they're not 
considering the time and energy it takes to keep a sourdough starter alive because it is alive. And so when I um, say that I'm celebrating the one year birthday of my sourdough, it's just Mm -hmm. that success story of keeping it alive for a year, continuing (laughs) to celebrate how many things I've baked with it. Um, My particular sourdough starter has also crossed the Atlantic Ocean multiple times as I've gone back and forth from Sweden. Your sourdough starter is more well-traveled than I am, it seems. Yes. Um, so that's also an accomplishment that I like to celebrate and advertise as I have shared my sourdough um, now across the U.S. to different mm-hmm. people that um, it has bacteria from Sweden as well as Vermont and New Hampshire. <laughs> <laughs> that That's incredible. And, and it really does impart different flavors, the locations of where you are because of the, the wild yeast, right? Yeah, and I think that's why... San Francisco has always been celebrated for their sourdough. I remember um, talking with my dad pretty in-depthly as a young child about that and, you know, the the sort of lore or the mystery around San Francisco sourdough. Why is it so good? And Mm -hmm. it can definitely be attributed to the local bacteria and the local yeast that are just in the air, um, as well as I think... I remember that lore being centered around the water that is used. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, just the second half of this question of what made you want to get into baking, but specifically sourdough, since we're on the topic of sourdough. Um, I know for me, um, I baked my first sourdough as more of like a challenge to myself to see if I could do it because there's something um that is a little bit more artisanal about a sourdough loaf versus if you're just baking a, a standard, you know, you add, you know, yeast to, to, you know, all purpose flour and you bake like a country white loaf. Um, there is like an artisanal quality to sourdough. So I kind of took it on as a challenge, but, um, what made you want to get into sourdough? So I don't think I had baked a loaf of bread before I started baking sourdough. And for me, it was almost that same thing where, I had maybe been thinking about it for a while, had a lot of free time on my hands, and saw that it was something that not a lot of people can do. Not a lot of people are successful at it, and it takes many, many hours, Mm -hmm. which I thought, oh yeah, I should do something like that. (laughs) (laughs) And that has been reflected of many things in my life that I've chosen to do, like running a marathon and making kimchi something that is like taking many hours. Not a lot of people can do it. It's challenging. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, it was coming into that as a challenge and sort of that um, special skill that that sets you apart maybe from other people. Um, And yeah, I think think that's probably mainly what it is. Um, And then just as I went into it more and as I started baking more, just enjoying having your hands in dough. I think it's just something that's really cathartic about that. It's really sensory. It's There's even, you know, ranges of temperature. And, and as you bake, you get to know your dough. Um, and, you know, I know that my biscuits feel this way and cookies feel this way and bread and bagels are different. Um, so continuing to bake, I think, comes from the process and if you're someone that is going to enjoy that process, then you, I think you will find success. And that process for me is is grounded and sensory. I, I almost um, 
find it inconvenient that I bake so much because I don't always enjoy eating it. Um, <laughs> I which, bet your friends disagree. Yeah, it's nice that I can give it away so easily. Um, but yeah, for me, it really comes down to the challenge, the niche market, um, and then, yeah, the process. Some of our listeners uh, may be well-versed in the intricacies of the sourdough process, and others may be completely in the dark about it. So let's illuminate the process for those people, shall we? Uh, the next question I have for you is, what exactly is a sourdough culture, a sourdough starter? How do you make one? And what is the process of making leavened bread without using yeast? So, And by that, I mean starter. additional yeast, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so sourdough bread starts with the starter, which is made up of, in its simplest form, flour and water. Um, there are ways to quicken that process by adding extra sugars or nutrients to your bacteria or yeast. Um, but when I started, it was just, um, yeah, basically just flour and water. And then you leave that to ferment and you keep feeding it every day. Um, so that's sort of the, the initial process. And there's quite a few recipes out there. Um, I've even, it sort of is also a cultural component to sourdough where depending on where you are in the world and the resources available, some people feed their sourdough with milk, um, from a variety of different animals, That's eggs. Wild. I've never heard yeah. of that. Wow. Yeah. Raw eggs. I was just looking at potato starter, mm -hmm. um, which is just like boiled potato and water. Um, so there are so many different varieties but i think the easiest and the simplest is just to take the time to just start with flour and water i think it gives you the greatest chance of success adding salt and sugar really changes the timing and like salt slows the activity of the yeast sugar is an extra addition for food but it can slow it in a different way <laughs> so yeah baking sourdough bread starts with the starter. As I said before, you need to sort of feed your starter to keep it active and bubbly. And that, you can mix flours. It doesn't have to be the same kind of flour. If you have the base, I have always just used all-purpose flour because it's really accessible. Um, and as I share recipes, I think when you get into a recipe and there's 10 different kinds of flours and you know, summer bread and whole wheat or rye. Mm -hmm. um, it can sort of be off-putting. So starting with, um, mine started with all-purpose flour. Obviously, as I've moved, I've had to change the brand of flour, um, but always to make sure that it's unbleached because that keeps some of the natural bacteria that, that is naturally occurring on the flour. Um, if you have the ability, getting flour from small producers, um, or hand milling your flour, it's gonna just really, um, your, your starter is really gonna flourish because there's more bacteria rather than like machine process, which um, we have the privilege of living so close to King Arthur flour, mm -hmm. which is a great mass produced flour. Um, and I think, you know, it's one of the better ones on the market, but saying that if you, can support like local farmers, that flour is going to, you know, you're going to see so much difference in your starter and your loaf. Mm -hmm. So don't reach for that just bleached flour, cheapest one on the, on the shelf. If you're looking to, to start a sourdough starter, maybe, yeah. maybe get a little bit finer quality, um, to start your sourdough culture. 
Yeah, exactly. That bleach stuff is not going to do you any favors. You're probably not going to feel very successful,、mm-hmm. and it's going to be a lot harder to get your starter going.、Um, so the the main thing is we're looking for bacteria. We're looking for healthy bacteria、um, that naturally occurs in the air,、uh, as well as stuff that's coming from the flower and the water that you're putting into it. So、um, starting your starter is one the first step,、um, and Before you start baking a bread, you need to have a very active starter, which means that your starter is visibly active, in that it's very bubbly, it's very fragrant, it's going to smell vinegary but also floral.、Um, it has grown from in in your container, and a good way to measure that is to feed your starter and put a rubber band at the point. Oh,、um, that's a good idea. At the top point,、mm-hmm. yeah. So if you have a jar, putting a rubber band around the jar at the highest level of after you fed it, and then you can see as it grows how much it's grown. And a good、um, doubling in size is always good、mm-hmm. to start with that.、Um, another thing, along like the fragrancy of your starter, I haven't experienced this, but I also read once that if your starter starts to smell like nail polish remover, that is. Is its、uh, sort of death sentence? Oh no,、uh, that's not good. So, so like yeah, an acetone so, kind of that、mm-hmm. uh, uh, smell, like a harsh alcohol kind of smell. Yeah, that that's not going to be good. And I don't know that it's you know not redeemable at that point.、Mm-hmm. But、um, you know, always keeping in touch with your starter and knowing what it smells like. I also taste my starter. I like to know what it tastes like to to sense sort of when that's off putting, and that's also helped me in baking with regular yeast or、um, commercially produced yeast. Unfortunately, my aunt mixed some yeast that we found at、um, her mother in law's house、mm-hmm. with the yeast that I had bought, and.、Um, She thought that it would be okay, and the next time I baked with it, I opened the container, and I, I always keep my yeast in the freezer,、mm-hmm. commercially produced yeast in the freezer. I opened it up, and immediately I could smell that it was different, and I was like, "Dang it, this is dead." <laughs> she, she had sort of ruined my yeast、oh, no. <laughs> store,、oh, no. which is really, really unfortunate now because it's hard to find commercially produced yeast.、Mm-hmm. Um, back on sourdough, though, so、um, when your starter is active, which means that it's bubbly, it's fragrant. Um, you can know that it can be time to start baking. If you're starting your starter from scratch, that's probably about a week.、Um, mm-hmm. And again, you know, this is this is a very time-intensive, in some sense, labor-intensive process. And if you want to have the greatest chance for success, you might have to wait that one or two extra days to make sure that your starter is really bubbly. Sure. So, like a week is a good. Guideline, but it's not necessarily the golden rule. Exactly,、okay. uh, I think I probably waited like nine days for、mm-hmm. mine,、um, which also coincided with the weekend. So that was really nice、mm-hmm. um, planning ahead like that. And then、um, it's gonna come down to as you're first starting, you probably have a recipe that you found. Adding、um, water first to your starter. Um, incorporating the starter into the water so that it kind of is well blended,、um, so you don't have like chunks of starter, and then adding that flour in.、Uh, 
Um, this is kind of a trick that they don't often say in recipes, but you might know it as well from cooking is that you always add salt. You, when you add salt to a recipe, you need to consider how it's going to react with water um, because salt tends to draw out water yes. if you're like sauteing vegetables and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing with bread. You want to add your salt after your flour has been hydrated. Mm -hmm. So if you're thinking, and this goes for all bread, if you're thinking about first I'm adding my starter, then my water, then my flour, I'm going to blend all that together to form a shaggy dough. Um, and then I'm going to wait 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and then add my salt in. And that just allows the flour to be fully hydrated, mm -hmm. which can really help produce a strong textured loaf. Um, and then don't skimp on the salt either because oftentimes salt is your only kind of flavor enhancer in the bread. So my rule of thumb is about like 9 to 11 grams of salt per loaf. Mm -hmm. um, and speaking of grams, that's another thing you really need to invest in is a scale. Yes. Anybody who's serious about uh, baking any anything uh, from scratch... Uh, th that is a must-have purchase because unlike cooking, uh, baking is much more of a mathematic science um, and less of a free-spirited uh, artistic journey of just, well, I think it needs a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Uh, no, oftentimes you deviate from the recipe, you end up with an entirely different product. Exactly. So baking has a lot of creativity in it, but you can't do that without getting the basics of that math, of that science. And so, um, you know, right from the beginning, when you're making your starter, you're feeding it one to one to one from starter to flour to water. And you have to do that by weight. You cannot do it by measuring cups. You know, I've spent time like looking up how much does a cup of flour weigh? Mm -hmm. And it's never going to be the same because... A, you're not using the same flour that whoever blogger you're looking at posted about. Sure. And, you know, there's just different components to measuring cups internationally, especially, which I've done a lot of when I live in Sweden. You know, we use deciliters and liters and things like that and cups. It's all different. So mm -hmm. unfortunately, like, just get a scale. It's going to help you. There's no other way for you to do it. Sure. It's just, you know. <laughs> it's... it's pretty much the perfect kitchen item because it's a multitasker. You can use it for multiple things, not just for baking, but, you know, especially if you're on a, you know, if you're taking a calorie restricted diet and you want to say, okay, I need four ounces of chicken breast. I can weigh exactly four ounces of cooked chicken breast and like meal prep ahead using that scale. So just buy a scale. They're, they're affordable. Um, you can get them, you know, at, at any kitchen supply store. They're, they'll run you like 20 to 25 bucks, I think, for a mm -hmm. small one. Um, it's definitely a worthwhile investment. Yeah. Um, I was, it's funny, I was thinking about this the other day. I was reading sort of a, a mass-produced magazine about recipes and things like that. And they're like, we would like our, our recipes to be really accessible so we don't use, you know, measuring um, units. We'd, we'd rather be able to, everyone to be able to do it. And, and so we use like, you know, cups and things like that or volume units. Mm -hmm. um, but then they have like, me mixing with a KitchenAid mixer. 
Mm-hmm. And it's like, how is that more accessible? <laughs> yeah, everybody I has a two hundred and fifty dollars KitchenAid mixer, right? <laughs> exactly. So I don't know. Just just get a scale, people. Like, it's small. It's easily storable. It'll really help you feel successful. I wanted to add along the lines of um, like the science of baking. As people come across um, sourdough, especially, they're going to talk about baking math, mm-hmm. which people will see about like hydration, 100% hydration, 80% hydration, things like that. So that's just talking about um, how the percentage of flour and water that you're adding to a recipe. So there's like, you know, that's not as important, but it's definitely something that is really interesting to get into if you're if you're interested in exploring that side of baking. And that can really lend to you to be more creative in your loaves because you can say, okay, my starter weighs this much, it has this much flour and water, I'm going to add this variety of flour, this much water, maybe some oil or some honey, mm-hmm. maple syrup, things like that. So thinking about liquid and solids. Sure, sure. So uh, adding up to the end of this process of, of baking the sourdough loaf and the process of leavening the bread with the starter. Um, so you get your starter, uh, you, you hydrate it, uh, you, you add your flour, you make your shaggy dough. Uh, what happens after you make that shaggy dough? I mean, you have to let it sit and relax, right? Yeah. So, um, building up the strength of the gluten, um, the, you know, tends to be kind of an evil word lately, but, um, (laughs) the strength of the gluten is going to really help your loaf. And, so two ways of doing that you can knead your dough all in one go um, and kneading techniques are really going to vary so judging time is hard i say put on some headphones turn on one of cody's podcasts and just knead your dough (laughs) just knead your dough until you get that window pane effect where you can sort of see light coming through the dough Mm -hmm. Um, i much prefer to do a stretch and fold which allows for fermentation while you're kneading. Um, And for me, when I switched to doing a stretch and fold, I noticed that the quality of my bread, the quality of my crust increased tenfold. Um, So I am always going to lean on the side of doing a stretch and fold, especially with a structured bread. Um, And that entails kind of uh, leaving your dough in your bowl, going back every half hour, 20 minutes, depending on the, um, the length of your fermentation and kind of rub, running your hand along the side of the bowl, lifting up the dough, putting it back in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's lots of different videos online about that. So that's my go-to. It doesn't necessarily lend itself to, um, you know, baking and, and doing other things It you have to dedicate many time, many hours to doing this and being able to be accessible. <laughs> my, uh, you know, pride was when I had to drive my cousin back to college and I brought my dough in the car with me because I needed to stretch and fold it <laughs> while we were driving. So yeah, we get creative. But, Pulling over off the uh, side of the road every half an hour to just do a little yeah. pinch and stretch and fold. Uh, but you're absolutely yeah, we right. I we mean, can. That, that's, that's the method that I went to uh, when when I was making um, more of an artisan style sourdough, and I think it, I think what it called for was every half an hour for uh, I think it was up to six hours. Um, so that's a long time. I mean, you start in the morning 
um, and by the evening you're you're just done with that one process um, so at that point you know then you can transfer to a proofing basket which is a whole other thing um, that that we don't necessarily have to get into but that's what I did in this scenario and then giving it time to sort of rise again inside the proofing basket for an additional hour or two hours or however long it takes for the dough to double in size. Um, it did make a make a huge difference, I think, uh, for, for the crust and also the structure, the internal structure of the bread. Um, there was a discernible difference from the first iteration where I just kneaded the crap out of it on the table and then, you know, let it double in size and baked it versus when I slowly was pinching and folding it. You really get an increase in flavor, much better crumb, much better texture on the outside of the bread. Um, it, it really is one of the best tricks in the book if you're looking to bake an artisan style loaf. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and one thing to, to take into consideration into consideration, especially if you're stretching and folding your dough, is the temperature of the room. So doing it for six hours is probably necessary, especially if your room is going to be cold. So the warmer the room, um, the the quicker the process is going to go, um, which, you know, makes sense because yeast is going to be more active if it's in room temperature. Um, you know, if you're in a, a lovely kitchen, you're going to, you might have a proving drawer, which is going to mm-hmm. be really handy. It sort of creates this temperate environment. Um, a really great way to recreate that is just in an oven. Um, so if you take a pot of boiling water and put it in the oven, uh, and then place your dough in that oven, it's going to kind of create this humid, warm environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another way that you can kind of recreate, speed up the process a little bit, which is really helpful. And then you just, you know, pull out your dough every half hour or so, stick it back in there and maybe reboil the water. But Sure, um, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and for me as well, to sort of try to put a capstone on the uh, the, the final act of baking this, this labor-intensive, uh, lovely <laughs> loaf of bread, this theoretical uh, bread that we're talking about, uh, I found, and I don't know if this is the case with you as well, but I found that using my uh, ceramic cast iron Dutch oven with a lid has been really the most effective way for me to uh, bake that loaf of bread. So preheating the Dutch oven with the lid on, taking it out of the oven, slowly and like very gently sliding the uh, dough into the preheated ceramic Dutch oven and then covering it and baking it that way traps some of the moisture and that moisture definitely improves the thickness of the crust and gets it really crusty and and nice and like crunchy and and stuff on the outside. But how do you go about baking that artisan style loaf? Do you use a Dutch oven? So um, I think one of the things that we've talked about a lot is how sourdough can be really seem really inachievable and how it can be ways you can make it more like, uh, popular or attainable to the average baker um so when i'm in sweden i don't have a dutch oven and um but that steam that you're talking about is crucial trapping that moisture in the bread is going to create a beautiful crust that is really signature to sourdough but that also um you know i think it's more enjoyable to eat and i do the same thing with french bread um so any way that you're going to trap that steam is going to be really important. Some recipes talk about opening the oven and spraying water into it. Um, I've never done that. I just think it's kind of counterintuitive because you're opening the oven, you're letting out the steam that's already in there. You're letting out heat. Um, 
So having that Dutch oven or having that cast iron, even, um, you know, using Pyrex is great. Mm. Glass isn't the best conductor, but it's going to um, do it's have the same sort of effect. So, you know, having a Pyrex pie dish and then, uh, you know, placing a Pyrex bowl or something tall that the bread can grow up into and while trapping that steam is going to be awesome. Um, the, the way that I first started was taking um, a sheet, a really heavy duty metal sheet pan and preheating that in the oven with whatever I'm baking my bread in. And then um, when you're putting your loaf into that hot pan, I also use parchment paper to kind of transport it and you just bake it in the parchment paper. But um, when that bread goes in, you're gonna pour your boiling water into that sheet pan, close mm -hmm. the oven. And the, the go-to is to steam your bread for the first 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then either your water should last that long if you're using the sheet pan, then you take it out. Um, if you need to add more water, you're gonna have to do that again so you don't, you know, ruin your sheet pan, but also that your bread gets a little bit more time steaming. And if you're using something with a lidded heavy duty pot, you're gonna take that lid off after the first 20 minutes. Yeah, absolutely. And I've seen as well, um, not necessarily for making a traditional sourdough loaf, but you talked about French bread. Another handy trick if you're if you're making a crusty bread at home and you don't have a closed container to bake it in, but you really want to trap in some moisture, when you preheat your oven, take you know a cast iron pan if you have one, um, or any sort of oven safe pan. I use a small, I have a tiny small cast iron pan here that, that I use for this. Um, so you preheat it with the oven, and then when you go to add your bread, uh, throw a couple ice cubes, throw a handful of ice cubes into the cast iron pan, and if that pan is hot enough, it should immediately start boiling that water off and creating steam, and then you shut the lid and you walk away, and again, you know, don't keep opening up the oven because you're letting that beautiful steam out, and that is going to make for a not-so-crusty crust. Uh, but that is also a nice yeah. trick uh, to, to rely on. My friend, uh, she started baking sourdough in quarantine and she actually uh, puts ice cubes in the bottom of her oven instead of like a pan of Yeah, of right on water. the floor. So, yeah. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. That's another yeah. option. Um, so let's transition here. Uh, so clearly <laughs> you can make a standard loaf of bread or an artisan style boule or baguette using sourdough. Uh, but there is a surprising amount of versatility in using a sourdough starter as leavening for other baked goods. My question for you is, what other baked goods can be made with sourdough starter, and what is your favorite sort of oddball item that people would maybe not think like, oh, you use sourdough to make this? So, um, this is great because sort of along the lines of being in quarantine is we don't want to waste food. Um, and right your sourdough starter needs to be fed, but if you continue to feed it every day, you're gonna have, you know, kilos and kilos of starter on your hands and not know what to do with it. So, um, And just to know, be clear, uh, when you feed it, you have to remove some of that starter, right? That's what you're talking about? Yeah, so if you don't remove some, you're just gonna have to feed it more flour and more water because you're doing it by weight and it's gonna weigh more. Um, so when you, start feeding you're gonna take away some of that starter and that's that component is called discard sourdough discard so um what i'm seeing a lot now which is really great is all these recipes are coming up using sourdough discard it's great because a lot of these things aren't even bread or leavened bread 
And, and the benefit of doing that is, is that you're putting good bacteria into your body, which your body needs anyway, um, especially if you have gut or digestion issues. This is really going to help you. Um, along those lines, someone who is has like a, a wheat sensitivity, I wouldn't, you know, this is not for someone who, is, who has celiac disease or is gluten intolerant, but if they have a wheat sensitivity, uh, a good way to introduce bread back into their diet is sourdough because that, that long fermentation that you need, often the cold fermentation overnight is going to be, um, it's going to make that bread better digestible or more easily digestible. Um, so along the same lines, using your sourdough discard or using your sourdough in other recipes, your sourdough starter in other recipes is going to really do a lot of good for your digestion tract. Uh, my favorite thing that I've done recently is taking my sourdough discard and just having a preheated oiled pan, pouring the discard in there, and it fries up like a pancake. That is wild. I've never heard of that. <laughs> yeah, it's so easy. You don't have to do anything. Flavoring with um, salt, a lot of the toppings that people are putting on it are savory based, so scallions. I am a big fan of kimchi, so I put kimchi on everything, including my sourdough discard pancake. Mm-hmm. Um, and flip that right over, it fries up, it gets really puffy, it's beautiful, it's really exciting to make. Um, I have quite a few recipes that include sourdough starter in baked goods, so a lot of different cakes, um, brownies, muffins, scones. Uh, This is a little bit coming down to the baking math. You have to think about if you're adding it to another sort of baked good, what is the ratio of flour and water that you're putting into the starter that already, that you need to remove from the recipe. Um, So that comes into the math a little bit, but um, you know, it can add that nice tangy flavor that's not overwhelming. but it can also, again, putting that good bacteria into your body if you're not cooking it. Um, so, you know, I found a great recipe for crepes using sourdough starter. And my cousin, who is, yeah, she's a real Francophile. She said they were the best crepes she's ever had. She loved them. So, um, you know, there, there are so many different things. And, and it, it's really great, especially if you can use that discard to um, not waste it. Because it is it is food. And it's actually food that's going to do you a lot of good in your body. Um, so, you know, as you remove your discard, you can keep your own separate discard jar or you can cook it right away. Mm-hmm. Um, you might see this sort of, um, portion of liquid that's going to sit on the top that is called cooch and that's okay. You can, um, stir to incorporate it back into your discard, but yeah. And that, that liquid is, uh, a mixture of alcohol and water from the starter, right? That's actually sort of like a uh, byproduct of the fermentation process, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, it's it's very acidic and vinegary as well. Another part of that liquid is, this is just kind of a little tip, if you, on your sourdough starter, not your discard, if you're seeing that little small portion of liquid sitting on top of your starter, Uh, that means that it's hungry. So it's time to either take it out of the fridge or it's time to feed it again if it's on the counter. You don't have to pour it out, stir it back in, incorporate it, but then, you know, that's one way that your sourdough starter is cluing you into the fact that, like, I need some more food. I have to feed my sourdough starter then. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Uh, So thank you for that reminder. Uh, Yeah. That's great. I think uh, things like 
um, you know, sourdough crepes. That's that's super fun. Um, any chance to incorporate additional flavor into a product uh, as as a chef is, um, you know, that that's coveted, I, I think. And um, things like savory crepes or even just your your starter pancake, which I'm going to try uh, because it, it sounds it sounds delicious and very easy. Um, those kinds of things are the oddball items that you can play around with and think about. So you're not just, oh, you know, I have this thing and all it does is make me bread. Uh, it can make you a lot of different things and, you know, have some fun, experiment a little bit, keep in mind your, your formulas like, like we've been talking about, uh, but, but have some fun with it because it, it is a process and it is meant to be enjoyed. Um, so going just back for a second, because you mentioned your your uh, friend earlier, um, who mm-hmm. since quarantine had had taken up sort of sourdough uh, and, and baking in general. That is a great segue uh, into this next question. So it seems to me, just based on social media alone, uh, that there is an increased number of people baking in general these days. Quarantine has most of us indoors with a surplus of time on our hands, and suddenly culinary projects seem to be all the rage. Sourdough is extremely high on the list of culinary projects I've seen making the rounds on social media. What is it about sourdough that is so intriguing for people, and is there a benefit to having a starter on hand during a quarantine? So, I think people are turning to baking because people have time on their hands and baking can kind of be an an undertaking and it's hard to devote those couple hours that you might find on the weekend to a project that um, you know is kind of can be labor intensive and can be inside and as the weather gets nicer people want to be outside so because we have to force ourselves to be inside I think it, it lends itself to the time and energy that it takes to bake specifically sourdough I think there's a lot of pride that comes from just saying like oh I made a sourdough loaf which is generally more of a luxury bread that takes a lot of time that uh, is there's definitely an art to it and so that that sort of sense of pride that you get um, you know I don't know where this trend first started I also think that it's a little bit of like it's having its moment it's you know Mm -hmm. quarantine minutes of fame and it's it's something that you can very easily that looks good in a picture online too so sharing it is really doable mm-hmm. um this same friend that i was talking to said you know i'm sure that you know pickles are a great thing to make in quarantine but you don't see people posting p- pictures of their jars of pickles because they're just not very photogenic <laughs> sure sure right and, and it does sort of fill that void of again everybody's inside nobody's Nobody's traveling. Nobody's getting these beautiful pictures of like, oh, I went to this like, you know, I went on this vacation and look at these these great photos and I'm going to share them with you. Uh, instead, it's mm-hmm. like, what can I share on social media uh, that that shows that I am a that I am a well functioning human and that I am existing during quarantine? Well, let me like undertake this big project and have this beautiful picture of bread to show people, and that's how I get my likes on social media. Yeah, I think that really comes down to it. I also think we're in an age of sort of um, bringing back kind of homesteading and appreciating those arts because it's more sustainable. Um, you can sort of be self-sufficient. 
you know, going into um, like the tiny home project. I know that a lot of people are making more of their own clothes. And so I think sourdough is another component of that, of bringing back those sort of old arts that, um, you know, are sort of referenced in stories and lore um, that we've seen family members do our whole lives and saying, oh, you know, I, I have the time now or I have the energy and I'm going to devote to to learning this. I am really interested to see how many people continue baking, how many sourdough starters are still alive a year from now, <laughs> six months from now. Uh, I've sent my sourdough starter to, to a few different people and it was almost a little bit sad because I know some of them are not going to be able to keep it going. Right. <laughs> um, but, you know, to be able to contribute to that, to that art in the moment is really great. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I hope that it, it, it creates this opportunity for people to really learn more and create good food for their themselves and their friends and family now and that continues in the future sure and i think that anything that is a fermented product like the other thing that i've been seeing a lot of is kombucha and i think it's for similar reasons um where kombucha is sort of a luxury item you know it's it's something that you find at a co-op right um although yeah. now it's becoming it's it's popular enough you can probably find kombucha in any supermarket um if you look in the specialty drink aisle but uh again it's this very slow drawn out process of creating something essentially from from what is in the air around you and uh it also shares very well on social media when you've bottled a fizzy bubbly uh you know pretty looking kombucha um again it, it does give one a sense of accomplishment um and, and a little something to to show off um and i think that that's great um then that's yeah so I, I just wanted to throw kombucha out there because i have been seeing yeah. a lot of kombucha and i want to drink it so if you have kombucha send me kombucha <laughs> Uh, but just, hopefully we don't have a graveyard of scoby and starter uh, after all this is done there will be a culling i think uh when people get back to being able to go outside and travel i think that you're right there there is going to be a major dying off i think of, of some people's uh, sourdough starters and, and and kombucha scobies but you know maybe not and and certainly some people are going to walk away from from this scenario with a new appreciation for for you know baking or fermentation in general but uh, going back to the second part of that question, what is the benefit to having a, a starter on hand during a quarantine? And I think of stuff like, you know, scarcity is a thing that we saw a lot of in the early days of this quarantine. I remember looking for yeast and I just couldn't find any for, for several weeks. Um, it seemed like there was a major run on flour, a major run on yeast uh, as people sort of try to stock up uh, unsure about the supply chain of, of how they get their food. Um, so what is what is the, the benefit for having starter on hand? So with with the yeast, um, I, I hesitate to use the word shortage because there's not a problem in production, there's just a problem in distribution, mm -hmm. but not being able to find that yeast in the supermarket, having your starter can function the same way. Again, um, it's natural yeasts that are coming from the air around you rather than commercial yeast, which acts a lot faster, even if you don't have um, fast rising yeast. Uh, so, but you're able to use it in the same way. Um, it's gonna, it's gonna leaven your bread. It's gonna add that volume to your baked goods. Um, and it's 
it's a sustainable way to, um, you know, it, it, it grows, it reproduces itself. You don't have to keep buying the same sort of thing. Um, I think one problem and, you know, I, I, I think people that had sourdough starters prior to this probably had their own supply of flour and they, they weren't part of this run on flour that we have seen. But part of the, one of the problems that could arise is if we are limited to our access of flour again is that you need to feed your starter with flour. So um, I had mentioned before that you can sort of change your variety of flour which is going to be really handy. Changing up the variety can also add to the activity of your starter. It can make it more active. So if you can only find that whole wheat flour, that's okay to feed your starter. And of course, you can also bake whole wheat bread. That's going to be really great. Um, but that's, I think, one of like the disadvantages is that if, if you can't access flour, you're still going to need to feed your starter. Um, and in that sense, you know, there are still options. There's ways that, like how I have said, you know, I've traveled with my starter a lot. There are multiple ways of doing that. I have um, been able to create, it's called a stiffy, and you um, sort of saturate your sourdough starter with flour, and that allows it to sort of become this hard putty or clay, and it um, can travel well. It doesn't need to be fed as often. You can keep it in your fridge for quite a few weeks without feeding it, or you can freeze it. And that's also what I have done is I've frozen just regular starter, not in this stiffy form, but just placed a Tupperware in the freezer with a little bit of starter. And then, um, you know, it takes a little bit of work to to get it going after the freezer. You need to feed it really well. But um, again, you know, as long as you have a little bit of starter, it can you can feed it and it can grow from that so um you know i think that's the benefit of having it is that it can always grow you can always change and develop it you can pass it around it's not this um you know this singular thing that you need to to buy over and over again Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily a finite resource finite resource thank you Mm -hmm. for sure for sure and and i agree as well that uh the sharing uh, part of it is is huge. I got my sourdough starter from a friend uh, here in town. He left it on my back porch so that we can maintain <laughs> social distance. But uh, it is a good way to connect with friends, I think, during this. Because um, every time I use it, I reach out to him and I say, like, oh, this thing came out really well. Thank you again for the starter. Um, it's, I think, in human nature to want to share, and, and particularly food, um, sharing food with people is is a human pastime that uh, cannot be replaced and we've been doing it since time immemorial and that's really hard to do right now um, when you don't get to see your friends very much but if you're able to give them a little piece of starter that then they can use and feed themselves or their family with it does scratch that same itch I think um, so yeah, I, I think that that's another advantage to having a sourdough during this quarantine is it's a great way to, to reach out to friends and let them know that you're thinking about them and, and you know help their family out as well. But I think we have time for one more question. So let's try to put a nice little bow on this episode. Okay. I think that undertaking any new hobby can be a bit daunting. And 
from what I know about any new culinary adventure, there are going to be failures along the way. It's easy to get discouraged and want to give up. How do you deal with a botched outcome when you're baking? And do you have any advice or inspiration to offer those who are afraid to pick up that bag of flour again? When I have had problems with loaves and there are certain recipes that I bake over and over again and I go through cycles of having problems with them, I go back to one that I know is gonna be fail safe. It's gonna be, it's foolproof. So I have that foolproof recipe that I know, especially with sourdough, is gonna give me a giant loaf. It's gonna taste good. It might not be the prettiest, but I'm gonna feel that sense of like, oh, I can still bake. I am successful. This is something that I'm good at. Um, so having that recipe, and even if that's not bread, is it, you know, brownies or cookies, things like that, going back to that sort of why why you why you opened up this door into baking i think is really important um, with botched loaves i've made some really great crostini over the year um, <laughs> you know i have loaves that turn out really flat and you can slice them up and toast them sure but the crumb structure is really dense and it just you know, I know that it can be better, so I'm not going to want to just eat that as like toast with some honey and butter on it. Uh, so I slice it up really thin and put it in the oven, dry it out, make some really nice crostini, which then you can, uh, you know, turn into croutons, have salad toppings, just have it as an appetizer, dips and things like that. So, um, you know, there's always ways that you can you can redeem yourself. I I will admit that I have. You know, known known a loaf is doomed from from the proving stage, and and I have composted it and <laughs> felt really frustrated and sad. So, you know, but I I hate that that it would it would get it did get thrown away, and, and that was really frustrating. And I don't think I would do that again because you know there are like I said there are ways. Crostini is great. Croutons, um, kvass is a fermented drink that you can make from old bread. Um, so that's like another, if you're if you're really into fermentation, that's another way that you can sort of recycle um, your stale loaf. Maybe you haven't eaten it um, or things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are so many ways you can dry out that loaf, cut it up, dry it out, uh, put it in a blender and make your own breadcrumbs. Like, sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there are ways. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I think what you say about like you know if 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 you had the chance you probably wouldn't compost that doomed uh, uh, bread loaf uh, a second time around, and I just agree one hundred percent with that. I mean the the great thing about baking bread is that regardless of what happens during the process from start to finish, when you cook it, you're going to have an edible product, whether yeah. or not it is up to the quality standard that you're imposing on yourself is a different matter, but there's always something that can be done with it. And I look at recipes like strata, which I've been making a lot of because as you have stale bread and you need to use it up, um, I found that that strata is a really delicious way to use it up and shout out to uh, uh, Chef Steve uh, for, for uh, teaching me that recipe because it's very good. Um, but also things like, you know, you can cut up bread and, and mix it into a simple cheese soup that you're making, just as thickener. Um, and it's delicious and, you know, adds some nutritional value to the soup. And again, it 
cuts down on feeling like you're wasting food. And during during this time especially, I think people are a lot more conscious of sustainability. And you know, just make that make the loaf of bread. If you think it's not gonna, you know, be the best thing in the world, you know, there's always breadcrumbs, right? And there's croutons, and there's, yeah. you know, there's crostinis. There's things that you can do with it. Um, but but see it through from start to finish, because I think that even in your failures, perhaps even more so in your failures, you learn a lot about the process, and you learn about how you're going to do things a little differently the next time around. So definitely, you know, don't be afraid to fail. Exactly. I think I, I learned I learned a lot from from my botched loaves and and what works and doesn't. And, and at the end of the day, it's flour, water, and salt, and it's gonna taste the same. And so, you know, also your neighbor is not gonna necessarily mind mm-hmm. if if you're giving them a free loaf that might not be as risen and beautiful but it's just going to be as tasty so i think that's also important in the sense of like sharing sharing your your bread sharing your creations is is great people really appreciate that and it doesn't have to be perfect absolutely absolutely and that's all the time we have for this episode i want to extend a huge thank you to you shelby for adding your wisdom to this soup thank you for coming on the program thank you for having me it was really great to talk about bread i'm impressed on how much i know (laughs) (laughs) well i knew that you knew you come on this show so thank you very much and this has been the stone soup podcast a proud member of the river power podcast mill Tune into our other programs like Too Many Hats, a very well done show by Jacob Garnjost and co-hosted by Ethan and Nick. There's always something new to check out on Too Many Hats, and I recommend checking it out ASAP. Also, check out Science Night with James Reed, who has somehow managed to convince incredibly smart scientists to talk about their work. It's highly interesting, and who knows, you may learn a thing or two. Uh, Finally, check out my other podcast, a terrifying show called Pulp from Beyond the Veil, and catch Shelby in the episode The Crimson Nightmare uh, to see more of her talents shine. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you again when there's something tasty to throw in the pot. Until next time, I'm Cody Sullivan, signing off.